The first reading is taken from Romans chapter 13, um, starting at the second part of verse 11 through to verse 14, and it can be found on page 1140 in the Pew Bibles. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than it was when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the the desires of the sinful nature. The second reading is from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, beginning at verse 13 and reading through chapter 5, verse 11. This is on page 1188. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. (laughs) After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the light, the night, or the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, Let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Sophie. Thank you, David, very much indeed. And if you're a note taker, there are just two little headings um, which will give you an outline of where we're going on the back of the notice sheet. And um, I'd appreciate it if, if we all kept that, that final passage open, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, page 1188. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, by, by nature, we cannot see the things of you, nor do we want to. And we pray that you'd work so powerfully in us, all of us, this morning, that we would both see what you're truly like and how that affects our lives and want to see you and want to change accordingly for your namesake. Amen. Has anyone read David Nichols' book, One Day? A few people. I think it's an excellent read. I think I read it in 2011 uh, on a holiday a while back. It uh, tells the story of two people through the lens of one day over a course of 20 years. We meet the two protagonists on the 15th of July at the beginning of the book, and then we keep on meeting them on the 15th of July for the 20 years which follow. And as we're reading it, we're wondering, why the 15th of July? Why, if you're going to choose one day, would it be the 15th of July? Until when we get to the final chapter of the book, we find that Emma, one of the protagonists, is to die on the 15th of July. It is her death day. And as it were, when we're reading it through, it's a bit of a morbid beginning of the book. Because it casts a shadow all the way back, and we think, oh, I know why it was the 15th of July. She didn't know, but it was her death day. It's a good book. I commend it to you. I've now ruined it, so please, <laughs> it's not really worth reading. But the title of this passage here in 1 Thessalonians could well share the same title, One Day. One Day. It speaks of a day which is coming, a day which none of us can pinpoint in our calendar and say it's the 15th of July. And yet it's a day which is in God's diary. He knows the date of it. And it's inexorably coming. As your diary and my diary turns every page, we approach that one day. Did you see it in our passage? Have a look down. It's in verse 15 of chapter 4, verse 16 of chapter 4. Verse 2 of chapter 5 and verse 4 of chapter 5. It's the thread all the way through this passage. And in God's Google calendar, it's called this, the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven to earth. It's uh, called sometimes just the day of the Lord or simply that day. It's one day in God's calendar that we should be ready for. And it's a day which, once we realize it's coming, should change how we live every one of our days. And we're going to see in our passage now, it should change how we behave at a funeral and at the graveside in our grief. It should change what we talk about with one another in Baker and Spice, if you can afford the pastries there. It should change how we behave in every regard. Two headings, if you're following. Jesus is coming, so grieve with hope. That's the first heading. Jesus is coming, so grieve with hope. Verse 13. 
Brothers and I dare say sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. It's Paul's shorthand for those who die or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. There are some events in life, aren't there, which really show, as we say, what we're made of. If you're an athlete, you need to race against the fastest people in the world at the Olympics. That'll show what you're made of. If you're a soldier, you need to face enemy live fire. That'll show what you're made of. If you're a Christian, there are a number of things in life which may show what you and I are made of. Depression, a debilitating illness, having a child who is disabled, redundancy, or, as Paul wheels out here in this passage, supremely bereavement. That, as a Christian, will show what you and I are made of, losing a loved one to death. Grief. He says, if you want to know what a Christian believes, don't listen necessarily to what they say in the creed, which we've just said. The words are great. Go with them to the graveside of the one they love and see how they behave. And he says, ask this question. Do they grieve like the rest of humanity? It's not that grief is a bad thing. Grief is a good thing. It is a right response to be angry and to be upset so much that we cry and bawl our eyes out when loved ones die. Grief is a good thing. But do they grieve with hope? That is his question. Because grief is a creedal litmus test, according to Paul. Now, of course, it's possible to grieve with an utterly uninformed hope, a sort of optimistic naivety which is more sugar-coated and driven by Clinton cards than by any concrete hope that the gospel may give us. Do you know the sort of person who's so optimistic they try and put a positive spin on anything, even, even the grave? And I've been to funerals like that, and it's actually deeply upsetting. I want to say, no, it's right to cry. But for the Christian, you and I have a hundred reasons to believe that the grave for the person found in Christ is not the end, and therefore we can grieve with hope. And we, we, we grieve with hope because of verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's not that the Christian is hopelessly optimistic or such a fan of Christ that they just think he could do anything for some reason or that we're just so religiously disposed that we enjoy funerals. It's that Christ has died and risen again himself. And this is the most glorious truth at the core of the gospel. It's that if we are found in Christ, that's every Christian believer, then where he goes, we go. So I suppose sometime over the summer we may be boarding planes to visit hot destinations. And when we board an aeroplane, where the pilot goes, we go. If he's going to Malta, we're just going to go there. We can kick and scream as much as we like, but we're going to end up in Malta. If he goes up, we go up. If we go down, we go down. And if we become a Christian, it's like we're boarding Jesus Christ's plane. He becomes our pilot. And where he goes, we go. 
And we know where he's gone. He's died, we will die. But he lives again now. We too will be raised again from the dead. It's the most glorious plane to travel on. Jesus is coming, so grieve with hope. I want to apply that to two groups here. First, to those of us who are grieving personally. And I know that'll be many of us. This past year for St. Michael's has been a year of many deaths. You'll know that if you're a regular here. Emmy Lou Astor, Hildegard Wiggum, Janet Whiting, Michael Bennett, Georgette Butcher, Julietta Lazarova, and Sarah Johnson and probably others known to you particularly, but not known to me. This past year has been a year of many wonderful things, but supremely for us, it's been a year of tears. It's been a year of grief. This passage is pertinent to us. And Paul wants St. Michael's Church to grieve with hope. Now, there's some debate about the particular nature of the worry the Thessalonians had in this passage here. My commentary laid out six possibilities. I think the most likely thing is that the Thessalonian Christians were worried that they wouldn't be able to catch up with their Christian loved ones who died on that last day. They were worried that in the corridors of eternity, it was going to be so busy that they'd miss their loved ones that there'd be no equivalent of the clock at Waterloo Station, no meeting place to hook up with them, to share that cup of tea and to catch up on the last few years. They were worried they wouldn't see their loved ones again, the Christian deceased. But Paul allays their fears in verse 15. You're not going to precede the Christians who've already died. You're not going to miss one another. Verse 17, we'll all be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, I don't know whom you are grieving for. Some people, you can make an educated guess. I don't know whom you're grieving for, but don't you just long to see them again? To share a cup of tea with them again? To hear their laugh again? To look at that photo album with them again? Just to be with them, don't you? I do. Won't it be a marvel on that day that we'll be able to do those things with those Christian people who've died, whom we miss terribly? That is a marvelous truth. Grieve with hope. But Paul wants us to long for something even greater. Verse 17 moves our eyes from those whom we grieve for to the person we should long to see. We'll be caught up together. Good. I'll see him or her again. Fantastic. We'll be caught up together with them. Excellent. I can't wait to see him or her. We'll be caught up together with them to meet the Lord. And so Paul gently turns our eyes from the loved ones whom we miss so terribly to the Lord, who is theirs and who is ours. And he says, we will see him. Wouldn't it be odd to go to the opera and to obsess about the people in the next door seats and miss the baritone on stage? Wouldn't it be odd to go and see Coldplay at Wembley Arena and get so caught up speaking with the security guard on the door that we miss the main act? 
We'd be missing the main event. We'd be deluded. It would be a waste of time. And I know it's hard. Maybe it's impossible to imagine loving somebody more than the spouse, friend, grandparent whom we've lost to death. But I want to say there is such a one. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're tempted to think of Jesus as uncommitted to us, he's our groom from all eternity past, and we'll see him. If we're tempted to think of him as distant, he's our friend who sticks closer than a brother, and we will see him on that day. Tempted to think of him as weak, he's our champion who's defeated the satanic Goliath, and we'll see him on that day as unattractive in some way. He's outstanding amongst 10,000, and we'll see him as a bit wet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he's our king, with king of kings and lord of lords tattooed on his thigh and on his robe and on a white charger at the head of his armies, and we shall see him. And won't he be a marvel on that day? For he's our saviour, He's the bloodied lamb. He's our way and our truth and our life, all wrapped up into one person. He's everything to us. He is life in all its fullness. And suddenly, in that moment, we will see him not as through a veil, as we see him now through the scriptures, but we'll see him face to face as you see me and I see you. It'll be the moment that my optical nerve and retina were designed for as they feast on the one who made them, and as his image is imprinted wholly on my brain. And at that moment I will kneel and I will bow and I will sing, because he's so glorious. And Paul says, Jesus is coming, so grieve with hope. Let me say now, I will be glad that my nearest and dearest are with me on that day, Christian family and loved ones. I don't know, maybe I'll be holding their hands, they'll be holding mine, but I won't be looking at them. Together we'll be looking at him, and we'll be delighted. And so, by all means, let's grieve. I want to say grief is good. And the grieving, for those of us who are grieving, goes on way beyond the rotor for the casseroles and the flowers at the front door, and that's okay. And the grief will catch us unawares at odd moments when we find ourselves breaking down, and that's okay. But Paul says... Grieve with hope. Grieve with hope. Because Jesus is coming. Now a quick word to those of us who aren't grieving. Verse 18. Therefore encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other with these words. Paul and Silas and Timothy couldn't be with the Thessalonians, so they say, look, please say this stuff to one another. You need to hear this. If we've ever never experience grief ourselves, sometimes when we have a friend or a family member who's grieving, it can be difficult to know how to love them, difficult to know what to say and what to do. We feel maybe nervous around them, and sometimes we can avoid them for awkwardness, or we fall into default small talk, and and we hate ourselves for it. We want to communicate our love, not in some sort of blithe way, but we don't know what to say quite. Now, there's a time for just giving someone a hug and saying, I was thinking of you, I'm praying for you, I love you. 
But Paul says there's also a time for saying this. Encourage each other with these words over coffee after church. I know you miss him terribly, but Jesus is coming soon and you'll see him and you'll see him. The Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage each other with these words. Jesus is coming, so grieve with hope. Second heading, Jesus is coming, so stay awake. So stay awake. Now, anyone undergoing suffering begins to watch the clock. Did anyone watch Bradley Wiggins break the hour record a while back? I'm a cycling fanatic, so I loved that. It was tremendously boring, really. But that was just an hour of suffering. He said this afterwards, you never think it's going to come to an end. That was just 60 minutes. And the Thessalonian church, as we know, was under severe persecution for their Christian faith, undergoing tremendous suffering. Only it wasn't suffering under controlled conditions. There was no clock ticking down that they could see. There were no number of laps to complete that they could see. The end of their suffering was undetermined. The one day was coming, but they didn't know how close it was going to be. And so they were asking Paul, please stop the pain. When's it going to be? When will Jesus come back? Because this hurts. And Paul gives them a typically robust answer. Verse 2, or is it verse 1? We don't need to write to you about times or dates. Because verse 2, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night like a thief in the night. Now, the thing about burglars, as some of us may know, is that they don't leave calling cards or make appointments. They come unannounced. And of all the burglars there are, burglars who burgle in the night time, well, they're the least expected. And it's not that Jesus is called Burglar Bill or he's carrying a swag bag and wearing stripy clothes and steel stuff. It's that he comes unexpectedly into his world. And the Thessalonians are saying, what's the date and what's the time and what's the hour? And Paul says, you can't know that. Not even the Lord Jesus knew that in his earthly nature. But he's coming unexpectedly as a burglar would. One day Jesus will let himself into his world and no locks will be broken because he has the key. There'll be no knock on the front door because he owns the place. And people won't be ready. Verse 3, people will be saying, peace and safety, Paul says. It's one of the taglines of Pax Romana at the time, in the the might of the Roman Empire in Thessalonica. Peace and safety. Look at us. The map's all ours. And then Jesus comes back. People will be looking at their life insurance policies and Uh, Savings accounts and pension plans and Trident on our, our national security services. And they'll make a cup of tea and they'll say, ah, peace, peace and safety. But before they know it, before the cup of tea is cold, Jesus has come back into his world, into the home. He's come like a burglar in the night. And when that moment comes, end of verse three, there'll be no escape. Paul typically changes his metaphor. It'll be like labor pains coming to an expectant mother. As you know, I'm no expert in that area, but I'm told that when labor pains come, a few of you raising your eyebrows, you cannot escape them. 
There's no ejector seat button, no tap out possibility. No, I've had enough of this. Let's stop it. You're in for the full ride. And it's painful. And Paul says, when Christ returns, something has begun that cannot be stopped. It'll be too late on that day to go on the Alpha course and get straight in our heads as to who Christ really is. It'll be too late on that day to get our our finances in godly order or our relationships in godly order. Too late. Today, in the Bible's language, is the day of God's favor, the day to make those decisions, but that day is the day of God's reckoning. Too late. It'll be the day of regrets and shaking heads and desperation, and I wish someone had told me. I'm telling us. At this point, we can almost imagine Paul lifting up his pen and looking up and pausing for thought. He changes his tone here slightly because he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians. And that makes him change his tone. Did you notice that? Verse 4, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all children of the light and children of the day. One of the ways in which Paul likes to speak of life before Christ's return is using an image of the nighttime and the daytime. And we had it in that Romans passage Sophie read. The nighttime is the time before Christ comes. The daytime and the dawn is what Christ brings. He brings the day. He's the Lord of the sun. He's the day. The Romans passage said, Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is almost here. In his terms, he's saying, Do you realize, spiritually speaking, it's 5.30 a.m. The day is almost here. It's just the end of the night. The rubbish is about to be collected by the binman, annoyingly loudly. The milkman's about to do his rounds. The birds are singing in the trees. The alarm is about to go off. Christ is about to come. He's about to bring the day into this night time. And because Christians are children of the day, because we belong to Christ, verse 6, we're not like others who are going to be asleep at 5.30 in the morning and caught out by Christ coming back. We're going to be sober and awake. His way of saying we're going to be ready. Now there are some things that are embarrassing to do during the daytime, aren't there? Um, It's embarrassing to sleep during the day. Doesn't go down well at any board meeting I've been at. It's embarrassing to be drunk during the day. It doesn't go go down well when you pick up the kids from the school gate. It's embarrassing to be wearing the wrong clothes during the day, wearing your pajamas on the northern line going into the city. It's embarrassing. And Paul's saying, look, I know it's early, and I know Christ hasn't returned just yet, but are you dressed, and are we ready for him? Are we living appropriately for the day? Verse 8, are we wearing the right clothes? It's not actually a a pinstripe suit. It's armor, the gospel armor, faith, hope, and love. Jesus is coming. Stay awake. Two brief applications as I close. First of all, staying awake like this is hard. It's hard. The thing about being ready for the day when it's still the night is that it's quite tiring, actually. 
And we begin to wonder whether we are in for a raw deal. Is Jesus ever going to come? It's 5.30 a.m. Is it really worth being awake at this time? You look across London, curtains still drawn, people still snoring asleep, some late night in the pub drunk. Are we missing out here? Why am I awake at 5.30 a.m.? Is Jesus really going to come? Maybe our spiritual eyes are drooping slightly and we long more than anything else to get back into bed, spiritually speaking. It's just so hard living for Christ, holding on to his promises, not living for self. I just find that so hard. I want to get back into bed, actually. I want to start living for myself. I'm going to press sleep on the alarm clock. It's hard doing this. But the second point of application is stay awake because it's a no-brainer to do this. It's a no-brainer to do this. The thing about waiting for the day to come when it's the night is that the day will come. It happened today. It happened yesterday. Always does happen. Day always follows night. Praise the Lord. And just as day always follows night, so Jesus' return always follows his absence. He will come. It's a no-brainer to be awake, ready and waiting for him. It's the wise way to live. As far as Christ is concerned, he's done the thing that no burglar has ever done. And he said, by the way, I'm coming. Be ready for me. Shall we pray? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as in fact you are doing. Heavenly Father, we pray that these truths, the truths of Jesus' return, would be the source of our conversation over coffee, the source of our comfort in grief, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.